The program you are about to see is based on a war game developed with the help of military experts and advisors. Its purpose is to inform, not to alarm. You will witness a series of events reported by the evening news on television. A series of events that could lead us to the brink of World War III. At this moment, flying over the United States is a military airborne command plane. It is a communication outpost for the President and Strategic Air Command. It is capable of transmitting orders to U.S. forces across the world during a nuclear confrontation. Its code name is Looking Glass. Radio Drome. Welcome to another Thursday night. I am Irradiated Josh. With me is Atomic Cecil. Oh, I was hoping for nuclear. No, Peter is nuclear. Oh, okay. Nuclear. It's, it's pronounced nuclear. <laughs> Destroy Superman. Not nuclear man. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> we'll be getting back to that in a minute. A couple of things to get out of the way right away. One... Go to adamandeve.com. You guys are looking for weapons of ass destruction? You can get that at adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, and you can get 10 free gifts. You get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping. Get your weapons of ass destruction at adamandeve.com, promo code DROME. And also... Weapon of ass destruction. (laughs) That's witty! (laughs) What, that's not witty? (laughs) In a a sleazy kind of way. (laughs) Also, a fun sleazy place you guys can go is Vinegar Syndrome. I think Vinegar Syndrome is a cool company. They're coming out with Vinegar Syndrome TV, and they need a little bit of help with their Indiegogo. So go to Indiegogo and look for Vinegar Syndrome. They're an awesome little DVD company. We'll be talking more about them in a special that'll come out this week. I just wanted to point out VinegarSyndrome.tv. Tonight, we're going to be talking atomic horrors. We all grew up in the 80s-ish. We grew up in the age of the atomics. I wanted to talk about the differences in the different ages of atomic horrors. When I say atomic horrors in reference to movies, what either subgenre or specific film do you go to first? Toxic Avenger that I always go back to. Like That's, uh, that's one of the first sort of atomic-based films I'd have seen. It's uh, It was the first trauma film I saw. So it's kind of what I associate that genre with. I know a lot of other people associate movies like them, but for me, it's always Toxie. Um, it's not so much uh, any one particular movie. Uh, I just always gravitate towards like giant bug things. You know, anything where you know scorpions or roaches or whatever eat some toxic waste and just grow to you know ridiculous sizes and then just go and eat people and and I go and run and hide because I fucking hate bugs, but I can't stop watching movies about bugs. I I always go like Peter brought up. I, I go with something like them or tarantula or Adam Age vampire. 
And we'll be talking about the other kind of atomic horror, the 80s Cold War kind of atomic horror a little bit later. Why do you think, I mean, you, we have to look at the socio-political background of why these giant bug movies in the 50s were so popular. Why do you think that atomic horror actually became a phrase in movie making with things like them and the beginning of the end and all these these radiation films radiation makes bugs grow big it makes people grow big the amazing colossal man and, and all that why do you think considering that this was something that was scary and real in america at the time why do you think we all wanted to go see made up science in the movies about this stuff well with like a lot of uh movies it's a direct representation of our fears of what's going on at the time so uh this was a way to kind of blow off steam okay you know we're afraid uh you know the cold war is going on uh there's the very real threat of nuclear annihilation maybe if we watch movies about giant mutant bugs. john agar using dynamite on a giant tarantula and clint eastwood <laughs> as an air force pilot yes Yes. His first role was in Tarantula as an uncredited Air Force pilot with one line. <laughs> he was a child back then. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's a representation of, of what's going on. So, I, I mean, you can that's one thing about horror movies uh, is that you can always kind of attribute or science fiction as well. But you can always kind of attribute what's going on in the time period as to what is the prevalent, um, you know, horror film or science fiction film. Uh, it's a nice mirror back as to what's going on. So, yeah, that's what uh, that's what that is. Well, I definitely think it's a it's sort of just a product, as Cecil was saying, of what was going on at the time. You have America testing out nuclear atomic weapons. Uh, you have the Cold War in the 80s. You know, you have uh, America and Russia about to literally blow each other the hell up. And with uh, times like that, you have movies like like them, the giant bug movies. You have, uh, Godzilla is a huge one. I'm actually surprised I didn't bring that up before, but I love Godzilla. I love giant bug movies. I love Toxic Avenger. And I even love some of the other like Cold War era ones that don't focus so much entirely on the atomic horror, but will use it as a plot device later on, like, like in a movie like The Dead Zone that kind of goes into the story later on. Stilson uh, was a prick. <laughs> I definitely think it's a product of its of its time. Things like that would be happening, and they would try to kind of put it into a movie, maybe to put people at ease and make it kind of fantastical and over the top and have people be entertained and maybe even laugh a little bit and kind of go home feeling like they weren't going to get blown up in the night. And um, I'd say that's 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 pretty much it. That's the way I see it anyway. But don't you don't you think that there's a sharp contrast to say, the way the 1950s dealt with atomic horror with almost that comic book style. Radiation yeah. doesn't kill you. It gives you superpowers. It makes bugs grow big. You know, it's almost like, well, why wouldn't I want to be irradiated, right? You got stuff like them. and But then contrast that with stuff like Miracle Mile in the 80s, which is all about, oh, my God, oh, my God, we're all going to die. Miracle Mile's awesome. It is. I don't want to talk about that era just yet, though. I want to stay with the 50s right now. Why do you think audiences flock to all these if they were scared of it? Do you think it was sort of that people didn't understand? Like I just pointed out, if you read a comic book from that era or go to a movie from that era, radiation gives you superpowers. Is it mm -hmm. that they didn't understand what dying of radiation poisoning, and that's assuming you survive either the concussion blast or 
the heat heated to a million degrees and under a second wave. Do you think that they didn't understand it, or was this just a harmless escape? I think that um, it's kind of like a facing your fears thing. It's uh, there was so much uh, fear going on that by going and seeing something so ludicrous as uh, you know, radiation makes uh, crickets grow, you know, to the size of buildings, that uh, it, it kind of uh, gives some relief, and you can watch that and you know get a little scared or laugh or whatever, and uh, come out of it. A feeling like, okay, you know what? I can kind of go on with my life because regardless of what's going to happen, I have no control over it. So it's just kind of, uh, uh, you know, letting yourself get into it and then not worrying about, uh, you know, the real world for a little while. I think when it comes to the 50s style of of atomic horror and atomic films, um, and I might be getting this wrong, but America was pretty much the biggest superpower at, at that time. So there wasn't really much for Americans to be scared of. You know, like a movie like Godzilla, that's a creature that was created by the effects of American, you know, nuclear superpower. So it was just kind of something to go and watch for fun. You know, comics like the Hulk is this guy that was given superpowers through the radiation of a, you know, of a bomb test. Gamma rays uh, specifically. I yeah, of gamma rays specifically. And um, so I think that's why it was a little more fun back then. Because audiences could kind of just go and be like, you know, beat their chests and be like, yeah, well, you know, we're the we're the best continent, the best country in the world. We've got all the all the best weapons. And then the eras to come, other countries started to get some good stuff, too. So then they kind of started to make movies that were more of threat of of nuclear fallout rather than the the fantastic effects of of nuclear fallout, like, uh, you know, stuff like them and Godzilla and whatnot. Do you think that's a very American-centric view of these movies? Because I'm sure, you know, a couple of years after Hiroshima, I'm sure them and Tarantula didn't play so well to Japanese audiences. Oh, or, no. I mean, the Italians didn't have a nuke dropped on them, but, you know, they were part of the Axis. I'm sure that didn't play so hot over in Europe. Do you think that's an American-centric view of these movies, that these are, for lack of a better term, a sci-fi form of kind of the 50s Americana? Yes, uh, absolutely. I think that that's definitely what it is because it was de- depicted in a bit more of a fun way and audiences would go to kind of have a bit more fun with them with the giant bugs. And whereas other countries are, are like they didn't really have anything to back themselves up with. It was definitely more of an Americana, more of a Americans kind of showing off what they have. We can make a giant spider and we can set it on fire. I think that's that's what kind of what they were doing. And that's why the, the movies of that genre got so different as as the time went on, because as yeah, so, some more more countries got the kind of stuff America got. So they couldn't really, you know, wave their dicks around anymore. Yeah, I think it's an Americana thing because it's, you know, the old uh, baseball and apple pie and giant uh, tarantulas that we uh, nuke and light on fire. <laughs> and it was almost always John Agar, too. He was in a disproportionate number of these things. <laughs> I have not seen as many of them as I would like to, but uh, I should remedy that because they're some of those old fifties uh, black and white whites are just they're just they're they're short for one thing and they're just entertaining as hell. Yeah, they're one of the black. best ones is them, or should I say, oh, them? Well, that's one that I've seen numerous times thanks to Monster Vision. And, and that's a that's a that's a seriously good film. I mean, if they remade them the exact way today, people would go, 
holy crap, this is good. Nobody would go, nah, this is very 50s. You'd go, them is an almost timeless story. Other than the technology, that film's not really dated, is it? Mm-hmm. No. And and actually, the the freaking ants, I, I mean, I saw a clip of it are recently. The fantastic for the 50s. Are still too. goddamn good. Like, there are a lot of movies where it's like, okay, that's just, you know, a bug in front of, like, some forced perspective stuff you know a forced perspective background where it's like all right that's you know uh, obviously a a real bug just not uh you know a special effect well i mean it's a special effect you know what i'm talking about he's wrecking right he's like yeah he's wrecking a model city but them still looks terrific i think it's also because they made the very wise decision of having a good chunk of it take place in the desert so they kind of could get away with with more where they didn't have to put them in like the middle of a city. They also made the wise decision of kind of the less is more. If you think about it, the actual ants fighting human footage, maybe 20% of the film, they rarely show these things. They show the aftermath of them more than anything else. They show the bodies torn in half and stores wrecked and whatnot, which is probably a wise move. So when you do see them, the special effect is that much more special. Um, it's a movie I saw when I was very young, and I watch it again every now and then. And it, I agree full on. It's a really great use of the special effects they had back then. It's a great way of um, both showing and telling. Like you would see the aftermath, and it, it really would make the effects that much more awesome when you actually see them happen on screen. It's really well made. And I don't just mean the effects. The film is incredible. It's perfectly paced. You're never bored, but at the same time, you never feel like the movie is glossing over anything that it need, that it should be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. It's a really well-paced script, and it's really well-directed. After the 1950s, I guess after we did drop the bombs on Hiroshima, the kind of atomic horror kind of went away for a while. At that point, you had the Watch the Skies stuff. You had Earth versus the Flying Saucers, Thing from Another World and all that. You, you had the aliens taking over. And the 60s and the 70s didn't have so much of the atomic horror outside of, say, spy thrillers and whatnot, or an occasional China Syndrome, which is a fantastic movie. Do you think that, again, it was cultural, how we moved from the giant bug movies to the oh shit a meltdown is happening movie like china syndrome by the time we got to the 70s was that a cultural shift or just a shift in society as a movie going society a little bit of both i would say just times were changing audiences were changing events in the world were you know different uh, so it was kind of reflecting that i guess you couldn't really do the whole uh, atomic radiation thing so they introduced aliens instead they introduced something that could i guess be uh, a threat to anybody in the world rather than you know just america having all the weapons so Damn i definitely you, yeah <laughs> that that robocop looking bastard yeah i i can see that being just a cultural shift uh a need to do something different because the world had gotten pretty different well there was also the shift in we're showing you the horrors. I mean, something like the China Syndrome is all about how, and it's not nuclear weapons in this case, but nuclear energy can go wrong and be yeah. very, very bad. You know, you had the real case, I mean, the movie wouldn't come out till the 80s, but the real case of Karen Silkwood that shows just how bad this stuff can get. And I mm-hmm. think that was a cultural shift as well. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and also, I don't know if you're going to get to it uh, the day after tomorrow. The Devlin and Emmerich flick? No, wasn't it? Are you first? thinking of the day after the ABC? Or, oh, okay, sorry. Just the no, day after yeah, tomorrow is the one the where they after tomorrow cold. was the they outrun cold. cold in that one. No, no, no. <laughs> I, no, I'm talking no the day the day after, which was the uh, the nuclear war movie. But uh, yeah, the the uh, I, it was a cultural shift as to why they started focusing on uh, more like meltdowns and stuff because there was uh, that was the new fear. It was like okay, well now you know we're harnessing this energy. You know what's going to happen when it kind of you know I, I don't want to say turns against us because it can't turns against us. But what's going to happen if we screw up? Here's the funny thing about China Syndrome: the studio thought the movie was a dud. Test audiences didn't like it. Three days. After it opened, Three Mile Island happened. Oh, man. <laughs> Ticket sales went up precipitously. <laughs> I, I'm sure it's one of those things where the producers were like, um, well, this was really good, but really bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those coincidences you don't exactly ask for, but you can't say no to when it happens. No, yeah. I'm sure that they were probably, as long as they didn't have family in the area, they probably were, were grinning to themselves and high-fiving. That's something but, so horrible. Look, all right, this sucks, and but, you know, man, ticket sales are going great. <laughs> but I, I think that's indicative of the movie going public, though. They didn't care about the China Syndrome until not the China Syndrome, but something similar to it really happened. Then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, um, yeah, that's almost a documentary now. It might not have actually happened, but it's a documentary. And, and I think that was the cultural shift that happened is they saw that nuclear power was dangerous. Yeah. After Three Mile Island. But then you got into, as Cecil brought up, the Cold War as it started to heat up and it started to become a hot war, or there was the fear of it, you had, I guess I would call the day after a scare film. Would you say that that's fair, Cecil? Because, I mean, it kind of is, but then it, it's not. Absolutely. Uh, well, it, it, uh, it scared the shit out of me. The last <laughs> half hour is a scare film, I'll tell you that. Well, more so the the actual, you know, the actual event where the uh, the bombs dropping segment, I remember it just terrifying me. And I watched it again and I'm like, OK, it's kind of cool. It's not really as scary as I remember it. But like I remember it vividly being much like being like Raiders of Lost Ark people melting, whereas in, you know, the version that really happened, it's kind of like, all right, you kind of see their skeletons for a second and then you see some buildings fall over. And it's not it's not nearly as terrifying as, as it was when I was a kid. I've got the original broadcast on tape, the four hour miniseries. With their commercials, or should I say with most of the commercials, no one would advertise after the bombs dropped. All the commercials are in the setting up segments. Well, they so they front-loaded it. Well, they didn't want yeah, to be... Yeah, they front-loaded it. There are no commercials at all after the bombs drop. You know, all of a sudden we see all these people dying of radiation poisoning and their hair falling out and their teeth falling out. Buy an Apple computer today! <laughs> you know, Smuckers is the jam. That... <laughs> yeah. No one wanted to advertise after the bombs dropped. That says something, though, doesn't it? Of yeah. 1983? Yeah, it, says it says they weren't selling their advertising space cheap enough. Peter, have you seen The Day After? I actually haven't, but it sounds awesome. It's, as... a, it's a TV movie? Uh, it was a TV miniseries, so without commercials, it's maybe three hours long, but it ran in a four-hour time slot. If that's if I can find that maybe on YouTube or something, I'm definitely gonna, I'm gonna watch it. That's kind of a because it's um it's I guess it's like a morbid curiosity with me. Like uh, 
when I was a kid, like nuclear holocaust stuff, nuclear holocaust stuff was something that freaked me out, which is is weird. A lot of kids were afraid of monsters under the bed. I was I was afraid of the world ending. Like to me, one of the scariest movies when when I was a little kid was was the opening scene to Terminator Two. You know, the ravaged buildings and skulls being stepped on and whatnot. So. This is something that just it, it's like a morbid curiosity thing that I'd uh, that I'd love to check out because it just sounds like a very cool era piece of uh, like disturbing nuclear holocaust stuff. So if I can find it, I'll definitely watch it. Two that you that both of you need to find are two TV movies. The first one was a CBS TV movie called Special Bulletin that was all done as if it were a news report. A couple of disarmament activists that actually stole a nuke and they're going to set it off in Savannah, Georgia if America doesn't completely disarm. And I'll just spoil it a little bit. It goes off in the last five minutes. And this is all done as if it were a real newscast. That sounds awesome. What's funny is... This un- there, there's an unknown actor that has two lines of dialogue in it as just a random guy on the street. Michael Madsen is his very first role. Oh, man. Oh, wow. He, he's the ex-cellmate of one of the guys that stole the nuke. Turn your key, sir. <laughs> yeah, war games. But then the other one that I think is even more chilling was an HBO original movie from 1984 called Countdown to Looking Glass starring mm. Scott Glenn and Helen Shaver. This one Ooh. mixes half of it is done like a real like a, a newscast and half and then the other half is in the studio and whatnot. It is the last five minutes. I watched it about a month ago, still made the hair on my arm stand up. It is so nice. chillingly realistic. Countdown to looking glass. It's it's a crime that this is not on DVD or even VHS. You you guys need to find Countdown to Looking Glass. It is such a fantastic film. That sounds like a really it's a really cool concept and definitely sounds like something I would enjoy quite a bit. Then how about some of the other ones that kind of played through the 80s that played on the fears brought up Miracle Mile earlier. Miracle Mile, I think what Miracle Mile does the best is until the ending, until maybe the last 15 minutes, you're not sure if this is fake or not. That's the brilliant part of this movie, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Because you're not sure if that phone call was real. Well, because it's like, is it a prank call or what? Like, because the thing is, like, they're questioning it the entire movie. So the whole time. All right. Well, I don't know where this is going to go. You know, like and and it was just amazing because I picked it up. I rented it on VHS, heard nothing about it. So I, I just blown away. I'm like, how is it that nobody I've never heard anyone talk about this movie. I've never heard anybody who had even heard of this movie. And it's it's really well done. It's got a great cast. And holy shit, that that ending is just outstanding. It was real, and they get nuked. You, I think you'll agree with me, Cecil, though. I think the movie plays the best when it's brilliantly played, how they give you just enough information to go, this is real, and you should react. But then they, they put in just enough doubt that you go, this might not actually be real, and we're panicking for no reason. Yeah, that that was the the beauty of it is they were they were discussing that and of course you had uh, I, I haven't seen it in a while but um, there was at least one guy who didn't agree with them and they were uh, and then um, Tasha Yar whose real name is escaping me um, Denise Crosby Denise Crosby thank you yeah she wasn't she the one that that called uh, and she's like you know I I know somebody uh, who's who's 
we are working it at, at uh, NATO and, and they're saying that it's real. And, and so that kind of sparked everything. And yeah, and, and they were, you know, trying to find, you know, someplace to go for shelter. And yeah, oh, it's just just a damn good movie. Yeah, because you, you just you have no idea where it's going to go. I have not seen that one in particular, but I have seen a TV movie that has a, a similar plot. Uh, the name of it escapes me, but it's like these people that wake up on an airplane and they're told that like a nuclear war is happening while they're on the plane. So it's it's kind of a it's a similar concept and a, and a concept a concept that I really enjoy, where the feeling of of dread that you're getting is what the characters are feeling in the film or in the show, uh, because you don't actually know it, nothing is shown. You're not shown what's going on outside of the plane. You know exactly what the what the characters know, which I think is a fantastic storytelling element because you truly don't find anything else out. Anything about what's going on, the story, anything until the end, until somebody in the actual movie knows what's happening. And I think that's that's really great. And it's uh, it's another one that I definitely need to see because what the plot of, of Miracle Mile and Cecil, correct me if I get anything wrong here. Anthony Edwards is a, is a nerd and he is going out on his first date with what was it? Mayor Whittingham. That was the female in that Cecil. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was her. So the kind of pug face girl. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, they're going on their first date. He all of a sudden a, a payphone rings, and Anthony Edwards answers it, and it's someone claiming to be from one of the silos who just launched his nukes. He's he was calling his father to say goodbye because the world's about to end, and he dialed the wrong number. So then Anthony Edwards starts telling everybody about this and it starts spreading throughout the city and you never know if that phone call was real or not until they're trying to escape and the sky goes bright red and they crash into the La Brea tar pits and get obliterated. That's an awesome plot, isn't it, Cecil? Oh, man. It's, it's amazing. It's friggin' it's, – it's so goddamn good. I mean the last 10 minutes when like – the 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 sirens are going off and just all hell hell's breaking loose and and people are just robbing and beating each other up and uh, yeah killing just to to get somewhere it's yeah it's it's just such a kickass movie well and then you you hinted earlier to Michael Madsen turn not turning his key you also have arguably lighter atomic horror movies like War Games War Games is a fantastic movie incredibly dated movie and no i will not count that goddamn dead code sequel that that thing that's not a war game sequel shut the unplug fuck up. the damn thing i piss <laughs> on a spark plug it thought it'd do any good which was a brilliant ad lib by barry corbin do you think that that movie treating it somewhat lighter actually helped or hurt the fear at that time because that came out the same year as miracle mile war games i i have seen and uh it's it's weird because that is a movie that's treated quite lightly, even though like what's going on would, you know, very rightfully so make you shit your pants if it was happening, because you know every every moment is you have the the risk of these these missiles being launched and just destroying everything. The sort of lightheartedness, the the levity was added so you could still go watch it and enjoy it and and not go home and and have nightmares for the rest of the month uh, about exploding. So I think that that may be why they they kind of went for a lighter approach with that one. I think they kind of went 
uh, with the lighter approach because it was covering a couple of things. It was covering computer hackers and it was covering uh, the video gamers. Video game. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was covering hackers, video gamers, and uh, the potential threat of like nuclear war. And so they, they kind of, as is popular with uh, a lot of TV and movies, they don't really quite understand video gamers and hackers. Uh, what was the one? It was like the notorious hacker known as 4chan. And it's like, oh, <laughs> thank you, CNN. Thank Just you, who this. is 4chan? <laughs> yes. He doesn't like, uh, all right, whatever. <laughs> but uh, so I think that that was their way of doing stuff. Like they, they, they kind of bullshitted around with, with hacking and they made it seem cool, but nerdy at the same time. And, uh, and by putting a nice influx with the, the whole thing of, of uh, the Whopper and Joshua and all that, where here's this brilliant mind who created this thing, but he didn't want anything to do with it anymore. It, and come it, on, it, Barry Corbin was fantastic in that movie, too, as the mm-hmm. crazy general. Oh, Barry Corbin, he was made to play the crazy general, as he has many, many times. I like Spies Like Us. That's a movie that really does not treat this thing seriously. I don't know. Spies Like Us failed. I think it works on a certain atomic horror level. Because especially because you've got those two generals along with the the two CIA guys who are perfectly willing to accidentally have nuked part of America just to prove that they were not scared of the Russians. I think that's a perfect time capsule of how stupidly nuts things actually were in America at that time if you did not live here. Haven't seen that movie, but uh, all I can really chime in with is um, in terms of how stupidly crazy things were, well, Rocky Ford did come out during that time. so. But uh, Dolph Lundgren was not a, a nuclear weapon. Yes, he was. You mentioned earlier, Peter, the, the kind of you, you see this movie and then you go home and you have nightmares. The atomic horror is only a relatively minor subplot in this movie. But you tell me Eddie Albert's vision of the atomic horror in Dreamscape does not still make you almost your pants. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. The the nightmare that Eddie Albert has as the president? Yeah, that was a really good scare the shit out of you moment because it was just... It's so intense. Yeah. Wasn't... um, Was Dreamscape... What was... uh, It wasn't 3D, right? It was that kind of weird cinemascope like there was like whenever they did the dream sequences there was such a an odd quality about them they, they, that... they, they, they used a much wider angle lens than they did for the rest of the movie so it gave it i guess more scope mm-hmm. it, it made it feel almost ethereal because it, there was more perspective there was you know the distances between objects seemed greater because of the focal length they they did that specifically to give it a dreamlike quality There's one thing that, like, Dreamscape is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. The only thing that pisses me off about Dreamscape is that the studio, for whatever reason, uh, when they released the DVD version, they cut out... They cut out the tits! They cut out the tits! And that was the funniest (laughs) part of the whole goddamn movie! When when a guy comes in, he ca- he's dreaming that uh, he catches his wife cheating on him, and like it's like with, with like with like the the, the, lar- the his gardener, brother the plumber, and the gardener. And... But they're like yeah. the, the, like he opens the closet, and it's like there's a bunch of dudes in there, and he looks under the bed, and there's a bunch of dudes under the bed, and they're all in their underwear, <laughs> and they're all in their underwear. 
so, <laughs> but they cut they they cut the, the freaking tits out. It it's like it completely like deflates the the humor of the whole scene. And it's yeah. like I don't understand. Like that movie had been around for for say twenty years before the DVD came out, and now all of a sudden. You're going to cut that part out? I'm going to have to go check my VHS of that. I can't remember if my VHS has the tits in it or not. I saw it on VHS when I was younger and like, because uh, I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it on VHS. So I, I know that the tits were on the VHS. Oh, well, Dreamscape was the first movie to ever be rated PG-13. Um, it, was, it wasn't the first one to come out because it, it had, was the, it right, had right, longer right, right. post-production. It Dreamscape post, was the yeah. first one that got a PG-13 rating, got, but Red yeah. Dawn was the first movie to come out with a PG-13 rating. Th- that's mm, right. Yeah. That's what it was. Would um would Red Dawn be considered kind no, of... Because, no, because they didn't use nukes. That was just straight up. No. That was just an invasion yeah, of it was just ground forces. Invasion. So that, that, that that's not nukes. But that was definitely made as like a, a scare tactic Cold War era film. Maybe not in terms of nuclear war but it was kind of a, a different aspect of it i guess you bring up something like that would you call an atomic horror film something that just uses nukes or maybe the threat of nuclear war for instance next week we'll be talking about disaster movies how many disaster films especially tv disaster miniseries from the early 2000s they always use nukes to melt the tectonic plates back together or we got to use a nuke on the moon or whatnot why in disaster movies are nukes the answer instead of the problem <laughs> i have no idea um i i could think about that for hours and not not be able to give you a proper answer it's just weird like how how could you solve um you know tectonic plates by blasting it with a nuclear missile like are you trying to destroy yourself that's it's kind of yeah um that is a bit strange. I mean I don't I, I don't know if I would it could have a, atomic elements to it but I, I don't think that necessarily makes it like atomic horror or anything. They're just they're using nukes as a, as like a a point to drive the movie forward or something. <laughs> I don't know. They are like the savior but a lot of times it's like you get the the guy where you know well let's nuke it and then well no that's a really terrible idea yeah you shouldn't do that <laughs> and then they're like no we're gonna do it and then they do it and it's a terrible idea and then they're like <laughs> why did we worse. do that that was a terrible idea oh gee it made it worse who'd have seen <laughs> that coming exactly <laughs> you know or like or in something like this is going a, a, a bit forward but it's like all right you know, nuke the sons of bitches, uh, Independence Day. And yeah. it's like, here's our greatest weapon, did absolutely nothing. Like, <laughs> all it did is irradiate the rest of the people the alien ship hadn't gotten to yet. Yeah. Everybody yep. else that's still alive down there is f- like, Yep. <laughs> you're, you are now dead. I do. I like it when they do that, when the, you know, when the idiot general is like, best solution is to nuke them and just absolutely nothing happens. Like, I think that's that's a hilarious element to a, disaster film because and it does kind of it makes the film more interesting because now there's even more at stake like it's not only a natural disaster anymore now they've they've kind of um irradiated stuff too let's now look at what happens after the bombs drop cecil post-apocalypse yes you know the movies that use I mean, you know, sometimes it's it's something like you know just an environmental disaster or something like that a lot of times like Planet of the Apes, it's at least hinted at Planet of the Apes that it was nuclear war that caused everything. 
And but you've got ones like the Road Warrior and whatnot like that. Why do you think that was such a go-to? Why do you think post-nuclear horror was so popular in especially the 80s? At the same time, we're dealing with, you know, by, by Dawn's Early Light is showing us the horrors of the people who have to drop the bombs with Powers Booth. But then you've got the Road Warrior at the same time and you've got 2020 Texas Gladiators and all those fantastic Italian, you know, spaghetti apocalypse movies. Um, I think in that case, again, it was that sort of Cold War scare kind of thing. Like, this is what could happen. You know, the world can go back to a sort of feudal style. Uh, you know, with movies like Road Warrior, it's people fighting for whatever scrap of humanity is left. And in that case, it's it's uh, oil. And then you have movies that show that can show like the effect of the radiation. Like uh, one of my favorites is Joe D'Amato's Endgame which uh, is kind of, it's a bit of like a uh, running man kind of knockoff, but taking place in a post-apocalyptic world. And that one's got like mutants and stuff that are living amongst the, the ruins of the old world. So, so it's, it's kind of creating this post, you know, this uh, post-Cold War scenario of these people fighting for what's left of, of the old world and the mutants that it's created. And and really, it's it's just a it makes for a like great, awesome, fun movie making. Like there aren't a lot of post-apocalyptic films that I dislike. I would I would consider especially the the, the spaghetti post-apocalyptic ones like Warriors of the Lost World, the Texas Gladiators, Endgame, all that stuff. They're they're awesome movies, and that's that's really all I have to say. They're just fun movies to watch that were created from that what would happen scenario if, if the bomb was really, really dropped. All I picture is George Eastman tearing books in half going, books, this yes. is what got us into this right before he rapes our hero. Yes. Like, I was going to say, like, again, I'm like, Endgame has man. George Eastman who is in a bunch of them. Yeah, he is. You could make a baby. Oh, yeah. That's... Yeah, he was in 2019, uh, yeah. freaking After the Fall of New York. Yeah, George Eastman was a rape machine. <laughs> <laughs> and Just... man, woman, it doesn't matter. It didn't no. matter. Somebody was getting raped. Well, but then, you know, speaking of that kind of thing, did you ever notice that it's funny in, in the most post-apocalyptic movies, especially if it's from nukes, one of the few things that survived was shoulder pads and hair gel? <laughs> there was always a huge supply of hair product left over. Or is and that one of the powers you get from that kind of fallout? Well, you're also forget. Well, I think uh, not so much hair gel, but just Aquanet and eyeliner. Yeah. And, uh, and occasionally, um, like everyone is wearing uh, something out of Kerry King's wardrobe. Just lots of leather, bondage leather. And, yeah, and leathers hockey and masks. spikes and hockey masks. And yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, the, the only fashion boutique that survived is Penn Gillette's basement. I guess in a way that kind of makes sense because, well, I mean, obviously they used it for kind of a, a punk rock, cool sort of aesthetic. But it makes sense in a way because everything has been destroyed. Stores are gone. Th these are people literally just finding whatever is lying out there and putting it together in, into like, you know. So, so, all, so, so what are you trying to say, Peter? No, no one found the Walmart that's or nobody found the, the Goodwill that kind of survived. And <laughs> they, they, they've got all the I'm with stupid T-shirts. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, they found the um, 
they they found the sports supply store because they're all wearing like football pads and helmets and stuff using well, bats kinda, and hockey. Well, you sticks. need hockey armor, yeah. Right. I mean, that kind of it makes it makes sense to have that because they're gonna have like makeshift armor because they they don't really have the means to. You know, they, they can't really go raid a police station and get SWAT gear or make any of this stuff. Like, they're kind of just finding whatever is around. And it maybe looks a bit goofy when some of it is, like, bondage gear and stuff. But at the same time, like, it's 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 a really cool aesthetic. And I've, I've always I've always dug it quite a bit. <laughs> well, unless unless you're the evil super government corporation that, uh, you know, they somehow have, like, all the all the gas and the cars and, uh, and just, water, <laughs> solar babies, and yeah, in the water, yeah, exactly. Oh uh, yeah, like or, in uh, like in a, like Escape from New York is kind of like that, where you know everything but the government has suits of armor and like regular suits too. Is that that's uh, or, or what was uh, was it twenty twenty uh, Texas Gladiators where they had the uh, the UPS trucks that were spray painted black. <laughs> <laughs> and then they just, they opened the back, and somehow this clown car of f***ing motorcycle guys came out the back. <laughs> it's just, I'm like, how do they fit 50 guys on motorcycles in the back of a UPS truck? But see, see, so what you're not understanding is how to rebuild after that. Reestablish the post office. Oh, well, yeah, you know. Oh, the, 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 the postman. postman. Yes. <laughs> the post office is the signal to rebuild humanity. Tom Petty said so. <laughs> the post-apocalyptic stuff was so popular. Do you think that was also kind of an answer to the zeitgeist of the time? Because a lot of these were coming out at the same time as the day after Countdown to Looking Glass by Dawn's Early Light, and then you've got all the post-apocalyptic ones. Was that also an answer to the Cold War heating up, or was that just dumb fun with a mullet-wearing Patrick Swayze beheading dudes on a dune buggy? Steel Dawn. Yes, yes, yes there you go. <laughs> um, I think it was the double whammy of they were... They were dumb, fun, and the fact that they could crank them out cheap and easy. They filmed them, you know, in the desert where they didn't need shooting permits. They just uh, used a lot of props. A lot of them, they just would reuse stuff in multiple films and, re you know, reuse footage from other films and uh, or other post-apocalyptic films and, you know, shoot things from different angles to save money and crank them out quick and cheap. And the fact is, they just there were so many of them, they kind of flooded the market. And uh, much like the early days of uh, Full Moon, it's just that there there was a need for content for people to watch. And they were just cranking these out and people were watching them. And I'm glad that they were because I, I have yet to see like there are ones that are better than others. But I really have yet to see a like, you know, uh, spaghetti uh, post-apocalyptic Western movie that I dislike. Like, they're all good, and a lot of them also have, like, She-Wolves of the Wasteland, where it's like, all right, well, we're going to put Kathleen Kinmont in, like, this freaking leather bikini and have her ride a horse throughout the whole movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to watch this movie a whole bunch. <laughs> this is so, uh, but, I mean, you didn't answer my question, though. Do you think that there was something in the zeitgeist of the time, or were these just dumb, fun movies? I think it was a little of both. Definitely a little of both. Uh, they were they were utilizing the whole you know nuclear war, cold war thing, and they were just having fun. They were making action movies out in the desert, much like how Italy went to town on the spaghetti westerns. They they loved Mad Max, so they made a whole shit ton of those too. And they really you really can see 
Um, if you're if you really got a keen eye for that stuff and you really have seen a lot of them, what Cecil said, you can notice that they're using like they're reusing props. Like uh, I don't, I forget which which came before which, but you can see George Eastman's vest from Endgame in Bruno Mattai's rats. Like the the monk character dude is wearing his vest, so they're just like they're just raiding each other's wardrobes and just like making whatever movie they can with it. And I think there's a there's a really fun creativity to that, while at the same time, yeah, using that '80s nuclear war zeitgeist. I have to agree with our Lord and Savior Joe Bob Briggs that these movies were the spaghetti westerns of the '80s. Mm-hmm, definitely. And there's a movie, a uh, post-apocalyptic movie that is a, a classic. It's a lot of fun called Interzone, where one of the characters' names is Panasonic. Yeah, it's just the fact that they're going with, with I don't know, for some reason it's just, it, they're like, Panasonic, get over here. And I'm like, <laughs> well, <laughs> like, this is awesome. Now, the, the last one I want to talk about tonight is one that combines both of the eras we're talking about, the 80s and the 50s. Have either of you seen Albert Pune's Radioactive Dreams? Uh, no, long, no, I haven't. Long, long time ago. I know it's it's like the it's kind of more of a radioactive or a post nuclear like noir. Yeah, because what mm-hmm. it is is two kids are in a in a bomb shelter when the bombs drop, and so they grow up to be you know eighteen or nineteen years old, and all they've got to read are old noir novels and comic books and old noir tv shows and movies so when they finally come out of the bomb shelter at like age 20 they're all dressed like philip marlowe and they're raised on that and they're in a post-apocalyptic mutant rundown blade runner future and it's a fantastic collage of those two styles i don't know if it's a soundtrack issue if it's it's a nobody knows who owns the damn thing issue this thing is criminally not on dvd at all at least in america Mm -hmm. And you need to see Radioactive Dreams. That sounds really cool. It's it's a little hard to come by outside of the torrent. And the VHS will get, will cost you a good 50 bucks on eBay if you can find one, too. Yikes. It, it sucks because it's a shame because it is a really cool movie. And it, it should be on, at the very least, DVD. I mean, There maybe, has to be a rights issue. It, there has to be a rights issue. I mean, hopefully, maybe. I mean, Scream Factory has been knocking it out of the park lately. Maybe they'll they'll pick it up. I mean, they've kind of been going more horror. They don't do as much sci-fi. I, who knows? They they just picked up friggin' a, a Blu-ray release of Exterminators from the year three thousand. So anything's possible. Yeah. What are your final thoughts then on atomic horror? Do you think that that a lot of these movies, whether they're from the eighties, the fifties, or any of the weird sixties and seventies in betweeners, do you think that they will hold up for someone who didn't live through that? Do you think people will laugh at the Cold War stuff? Like, if they see By Dawn's Early Light, they're going to look at it the same way we look at Red Scare movies from the 50s. Do you think that atomic horror is something that some of that people who are not into this genre should check out? Absolutely. I, I think that uh, this stuff is going to hold up a little bit more because we for the foreseeable future anyway, especially with the, uh, uh, you know, North Korea um, kind of coming to a little bit more power. Oh, please. Is, all they do is throw missiles into the ocean. Uh, I think that since uh, nuclear war is still a threat for the foreseeable future, it's not something that is quite as um, 
you know, in the news as it was back during the Cold War. But um, it's still that that looming fear of, you know, nuclear annihilation. Uh, I think that it will have uh, some sort of resonance with uh, with younger kids. Now, of course, they're still going to laugh at the old dated technology and they'll, the special effects look bad and the acting is this and that and the other thing. But I think that some of them will stand out and uh, there are ones. I think War Games probably will be one that will continue to be considered a classic, even though it is very outdated. It's so charming and done so well that uh, I can't see anybody really crapping on it and just, oh, this is so dated, I can't watch this. There's always going to be people who will watch a movie and they'll be like, yeah, this is stupid, the effects are dumb, the story's dumb. There's always going to be people who will crap on something. But when it comes to this genre, whether there will be people who slander it or not, it's something that I believe will always be relevant. I mean, every... Every like couple years, there's always some new scare. There's some new weapon or some new country that's got a hold of something that everybody is dreading. So you can always go back and and watch movies like, uh, as you were talking about, like like war games or any of the, like I don't think Godzilla is ever gonna go out of fashion. None of that atomic horror stuff. The giant monsters are ever gonna go out of style. The giant bugs, uh, movies like. The, the, the dead zone are, are still very much hold up. Uh, obviously, Mad Max is still very much in the limelight. We're going to have, what, Fury Road in a by the summer, I think. And, and, and on are... this show, we will be doing a full Mad Max retrospective when Fury Road comes out because, oh. holy shit, do I want to see that movie. I can't wait. That, that looks so... That movie, to me, if, if we're going to talk about these films still being relevant, the way Fury Road looks and the reception that it's getting from people, of course these these films are still relevant. People still love this stuff, and they're going to continue to, because it's, it's a damn good genre. I want Fury Road to do really well, and we get a resurgence of that kind of post-apocalyptic film. Like Because I was kind of hoping that would have happened with Doomsday. but do- Doomsday, Doomsday sucked. You shut up. Dude. <laughs> it was a terrible film. I'm not talking to you. It, it, it was. What if a female <laughs> Snake Plissken was 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 in Road Warrior? I, you know, I, I'm just ignoring. I'm mute. Can I mute you? I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to sit here and listen to this. You bad mouth and Doomsday. But I was kind of hoping that that Doom. I knew Doomsday wasn't going to do well. Uh, unfortunately, like just regardless of the the quality of it or what you think it Doctor is. Doctor Bashir um, as Prime Minister, never. But but the thing was, Doomsday, unfortunately, was just never going to be a hit. But yeah. uh, Mad Max, on the other hand, Fury Road, like the reception is outstanding and everybody wants to see it. I mean, I haven't seen anybody, any news website, uh, you know, where they're just like, holy crap, we'll get this movie out as soon as possible. It looks great. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that it comes out. Well, first of all, I'm hoping that it comes out and it's as good as we all hope it is. And then after that, I'm hoping that it's a big success. And we get lots and lots and lots of post-apocalyptic films because that will make me very happy. And I think it's it's a genre that is coming back, too. Like, not even just with Mad Max, but, like, Snowpiercer is a movie that did really well, too. And that just uh, that came out pretty recently as well. It's, it's one that people are talking about and they're enjoying that kind of, you know, post, post-apocalyptic kind of genre. So it, it's totally going to keep going on. 
Well, but not just post-apocalyptic. You've also got stuff like I think the in America it's called nuclear run. It's actually called the chain reaction everywhere else in the world. Mm. You know, you've you've got those type of nuclear power is the problem or fallout or radiation that's not necessarily nuclear war or atomic horrors. Yeah. I think that will always be relevant as long as this is what we're using. All right, we've got to wrap up. So, Cecil, the true hot child in the city, where can people find you? <laughs> uh, what? Bad, the, that's going to be in my head the rest of the night. Goodbadflix.com. <laughs> yes, the song. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can find me at uh, goodbadflix.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com, and I will be nowhere near uh, any child prostitutes. Peter, can you say the same thing? Uh, I don't know if you won't find me any uh, near any child prostitutes, but where you definitely can find me is on Twitter, at Cinematica, YouTube, The Cinemasochist, Facebook, The Cinemasochist. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Go there, buy some t-shirts, help Vinegar Syndrome achieve the Vinegar Syndrome TV, and also get a weapon of ass destruction from adamandeve.com. That's great. Have a it makes good night, me sad. Guys. Uh, it makes me sad that I'm Canadian.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.